0: So, I'm sure we all chuckled at the clip a little bit at some of the things, but I hope that we can see, I hope that we can see the mercy of God. That through Him, you're able to get the 800 pound gorilla off your back. It is by God's mercy that He can take a situation that seems overwhelming, powerful, and strong. To take the sin that is in our life, that seems so overwhelming and controlling, and cast it as far as the east is from the west. Isn't it a comfort to you that God forgives that way? Can I ask it again? Isn't it good to you that God totally forgives sin? Okay, thank you, you're with me. And that God always provides a way to return to him. God doesn't shut the door of heaven, nor does he remove his watch care over our lives when we fall short. God is certainly merciful to us when we talk about mercy, because that's the main point in our passage this morning. We're talking about mercy in the context that God withholds the punishment we deserve as he has placed that punishment on his son Jesus. That's what we're seeing in our passage this morning in Romans 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. The mercy of God on display on behalf of Israel and on behalf of us, the church. Listen, the one thing that we need to understand and we're going to see in this passage is without God being merciful, there is no way that we could ever be with him. If God isn't merciful towards us, there's no way that we could find him. There is no way that we could meet him. There is no way that we would ever find forgiveness for our sin. The 800-pound gorilla will always be there without God's mercy. This passage that we're looking at in Romans 11 is a fitting conclusion of Paul's discussion of God's work on behalf of unbelieving Israel because it reminds us that God loves us and God keeps His promises. And so there's a lot for us to look at this morning and I just want to jump right into the text. If you have your Bibles, I'll be reading in Romans 11. And we're going to look at verses 25 through 32. Follow along with me in the Scriptures Paul writes, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. You see God's mercy? You see how Paul calls this church in Rome to consider the greatness of God's mercy. That without God's mercy there's no relationship. There's no healing. There's no work of God on behalf of sinners like us. Paul begins this thought in verse 25 when he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Now, The conclusion of God's saving work on behalf of Israel. And and, and this really is the climax of of what Paul's been saying for two and a half chapters. It began in chapter 9, verse 1, when Paul talked about the desire that he had, the brokenness that he felt for Israel to come to know their Messiah, Jesus. And for two and a half chapters, we've been looking through this passage of what God is doing on behalf of unbelieving Israel. And, and, and Paul talks about it in this climax, and he says, Israel, all of Israel, as we, as we read in verse 20, uh, 26, and so all Israel will be saved. Paul says that for the mind and the ears of the Gentile hearing this, it seems as if it's a mystery. Because for two and a half chapters, we've been reading about Israel's unbelief and the hardness of their hearts and how they've forsaken the gospel and how they have tripped over the tripping point of Messiah, Jesus, and how they have taken the laws and the commands and all of the righteousness that God gives through faith. And they have exchanged it for what they do in their works and saying, I'm outperforming the merits of the law. And Paul says emphatically, no, that is not the way to God. And this nation stands in unbelief. And yet Paul says, as he brings it all together, that Israel will find salvation. And to us, we think that's a mystery. How is it possible? Let I me mean, think about it today. If you go to Israel right now and you start talking about Jesus to the Jewish people, They will say, you are out of your mind. That that is a lie. He may be a good teacher or a rabbi, but he is certainly not our Messiah. They're still looking for their Messiah. They're still waiting for the deliverer. They're still wanting the king to come and conquer their foes. And the problem is, he came and they crucified him. And for us, The question is, if God is going to save Israel, how is he going to do it? It's a mystery. It's a mystery to think through the ways of God. And when we come across this word mystery in the New Testament, we need to understand because it's used in other places. The word mystery is used to to describe something that was once concealed. It was once hidden. But it is now revealed. And the word mystery was used to describe us, the church. We were a mystery. Do you read about the church in the Old Testament? No, you don't. But now the church is here. And the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. And the New Testament is written to these people that belong to Jesus both Jew and Gentile, that form the body of Christ, which is the church. But that was a mystery. If Moses and Elijah and Elisha and the prophets were to look into the New Testament age and hear about God's work in this body called the church, they would say, we have no idea what you're doing, God. It is totally a mystery to us. And yet that's how God works. He works often, not in mystery whodunit kind of things, but He works in mysterious ways, doesn't He? I mean, think about your own personal life. Have there been times in your life where you never saw the way out, and yet God gave a way out, and you looked back on it and thought, how did that happen? God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so when Paul talks about this mystery to the church in Rome and to us today, he does it in a way, as verse 25 indicates, so that we will not be wise in our own estimation. Now that phrase, wise in our own estimation, literally means, lest you be wise in your own eyes. He writes about God's saving work on behalf of Israel, which would be a mystery to us, To remind us to not be arrogant, to remind us not to be too proud in our own estimation, to not look around and say, look at how good we have it and how terrible Israel is. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't often look at myself in those terms, but there can be an arrogance that exists in our lives, right? There can be a spiritual arrogance that can exist in our lives that we've figured it out and they haven't. And I'm not just talking about Israel. I'm just talking about everyone else that hasn't figured it out. You know, you you read the news or you hear the reports or you're talking to someone that seems to be totally lost. And you can often think, I'm so glad I have it figured out. And you hear about situations where terrible things are occurring around the world and think, oh God, I'm so glad that you've saved me. Listen, in some ways, in verse 25 of chapter 11, Paul is speaking against what can occur in churches sometimes that we call spiritual racism. That we have it better off than someone else. And that's been an issue in the church of God for 2,000 years. I mean, in some ways, in the 19th and early 20th century, when we sent missionaries out all around the world, we we sent them out with a sense of arrogance that we had the brand of church that everyone around the world should have. We planted Western churches in areas that were not civilized as we were. And then we expected everyone else to do church and be like the church like we are. But what we're finding, if, you, if you've done any studies in, in, in missional thinking, um, missiology is what they call it, the most effective missionaries are the missionaries that go to a culture, learn the culture, bring Jesus to that culture, and they train the culture to love Jesus and then they leave. Not, here's the brand that you have to sing these songs, say these words, you're building us to look this way, you have to read this kind of Bible only, and you have to look like us, act like us, and think like us. It doesn't work. But that happens because, you know, comfort breeds the contempt, contemptible thought that everyone has to be like us. And Paul is saying to the church in Rome, listen, you're no better off than them. In fact, God's going to save them and you might think, why should they be saved? And Paul is saying, you need to get over that kind of thinking and what God is doing. This is a warning to us that God's sovereign plan to put Israel aside temporarily was to show grace to us and as we read earlier in Romans 11, as God works through us, he will use us to bring Israel back to him. Now the mystery is that Israel's hardening. Now the word hardening means the, the giving over, right? Israel was, unbelie- is, was in unbelief about Jesus and God gave them over to their unbelief and they were hardened to the gospel but Paul says that that hardening is only partial because it's only for a time. It's only for a fraction of time. And you might be thinking 2,000 years is, doesn't seem like a fraction of time. But when you read in the scriptures that a day in the Lord is like 1,000 years and 1,000 years is like a day, you begin to understand 2,000 years is only a blip on the radar. The mystery is that God is going to save Israel and their hardening is only partial. It's only partial until when? Well, the text tells us when the fullness of the time of the Gentiles has come in. If you're into Bible (coughs) prophecy at all, like studying the scriptures about what they say about the future. This is one of those buzz phrases that is in the scriptures teaching us about what God is doing in the future. But God is saying that Israel has been set aside, partially hardened, and that God will return to them and all of Israel will be saved when the fullness of the time of the Gentiles has come in. Now the question is, what does that mean? mean and when will it happen now the what refers to God's work through the church the mystery of the church God is working right now primarily through the church his focus is on the body of believers who will believe in Jesus Christ today that will confess their sins and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. And this time began at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it will culminate at the end of time when Jesus returns for his church. When first, and in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus will meet us in the air and take us out of the world. That is, is the period of the time of the fullness of the times of the Gentiles. That God will save every last Gentile that was called by him. And when that happens, God will return to his work in Israel. Now, Jesus prophesied in Luke 21, verses 23 through 24 that Jerusalem would be trampled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What's going on in Jerusalem today? What went on in Jerusalem a thousand years ago? What will happen in Jerusalem in the future? Jerusalem will not be in a safe place. It will not be the place that God had promised that it would be. In fact, Israel and Jerusalem specifically will always be in the midst of turmoil until the fullness of the time of the Gentiles. And so building on this thought of the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, Paul says in verses 26 and 27, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so before we discuss the exact when of when all of these events occur. Paul says that all of Israel will be saved. But when we talk about all of Israel, we're not talking about every person who can trace their lineage back through Jacob, and then back through Abraham that forms the nation of Israel. We're talking about the remnant of believing Israel, that, so that at the end of time when God is wrapping up his work in Israel's life, he will collect Israel to himself, all Israel will be saved, and every person that belongs to God from the nation of Israel is true and believing Israel. It's not just a national designation, but it's people who have placed their trust in the Messiah that is promised to come. Listen, God is not going to drag unbelieving people into His kingdom. So what I'm saying is, if you're of the nation of Israel... And Jesus comes and he's collecting his people to himself. And you're like, you know what? I I think that's a lie. I don't believe you. And God's not going to say, well, you know what? Because you belong to Israel, you just have to come along anyways. Kicking and screaming, dragging yourself into the kingdom. God doesn't work that way. True Israel, believing Israel, will be saved. Now the when tells us about the context. And to do this, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament in verse 26 and 27. He quotes from Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21, and Isaiah 27, verse 9. Paul uses a bit of creativity, though, and we've talked about this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Sometimes when Paul quotes from the Old Testament, he changes the order of things. And you might think, how terrible is that? Here's the thing. If you're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Paul was, and you're writing God's word, which is eternal, and he was, you can use the scriptures however you want. Now, he's not changing the point, but there is a minor change here. And if you want to read Isaiah 59, 20, and 21, and Isaiah 27, 9 for your own and compare them, you'll see a very slight change. And here's the slight change. He changes the words to in the Isaiah passage to the words from in Romans 11. What Paul is highlighting is God's sovereign work in redeeming his people. When he builds on what Isaiah said in these passages, he is pointing our thoughts and affections to the return of Israel is all a gift from God. He is working in a merciful way towards these people. Now this passage is referring to a set time in the future. When the deliverer, Jesus, the deliverer will come from Zion. In the Isaiah passage it says he will come to Zion. Paul says he's coming from Zion. What is Zion? Zion is the heavenly city. Zion is the place, the city of God. And Paul builds on this thought and he says, the Redeemer, the Deliverer will come from Zion. And he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is another name for Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying this, there's coming a point in time when Jesus will return from the place of God to collect his people. That is a very specific reference to an event that the scriptures teach, which is called the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, you've heard me talk about Jesus meeting the church in the air, right? To collect his church. I mentioned that a few, few minutes ago. In the times of the Gentiles, God is working through the church, from the birth of the church in Acts two, to him meeting the church in the air, and what we call the rapture, the collecting of the church. That is not the second coming of Jesus. Jesus does not put his feet on the ground. But here in this passage, as Paul is building upon Isaiah's prophecy about the coming of the Redeemer, he's saying that the Redeemer will put His feet on the ground. And we read about that in Revelation 19, verses 11 and following, that at the end of the time of great trouble that will visit the earth for a period of seven years, Jesus will return physically on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. And He will collect His people that are on the earth, who have lived through the great times of trouble, and bring them to himself. This is a specific reference to the second coming of Christ. Zechariah the prophet said this in chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. When Jesus returns at his second coming and puts his feet on the ground and believing Israel is in the tribulation, looking at this event as the Messiah has returned, and they will see this Messiah that they have pierced, they will weep and God will bring them in. To his everlasting kingdom. Now you might say, wow, that's great for them. But you need to see something in this passage. And I hope you do. Like this passage is really cool. It, it's awesome. Because this explains Israel's full redemption. That Jesus, when he returns, will take away their sins. This is what the passage says. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And this is a reference to the Isaiah 27, 9 passage. That God will forgive Israel and restore them in their covenant relationship with him. And it's based on this statement, this is my covenant. I also believe it's a a reference to what God said to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant, about God writing his law on hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. And when Jesus returns and Israel is gathered, they are no longer worried about the law and the requirements of the law. They see the Messiah and the law of God is written on their hearts. And by faith, they believe in whom they have pierced. And they are brought into his kingdom. Is that exciting to you? Man, that's exciting stuff. Because you have 39 books in the Old Testament of Israel walking in unbelief. And then in two verses, Paul uses the Old Testament scriptures to show it has always been God's promise to them that he will return and bring them back. This passage highlights the theological meaning of God's redemption of Israel. Some of you have checked out once I said theological meaning. But let me briefly share what Paul was saying in now verses 28 through 32. Because of the deep love of God for His covenant people, Those who were once enemies and disobedient will receive mercy and be called to Christ. That's our God. That's what He does. When He writes, From the standpoint of the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your, the church's sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, under the present time, those shown mercy who are Israel are enemies of the gospel. In the time that Paul was writing this and in the time today that we're living in, Israel, for the sake of the gospel, is an enemy of God. They are. In fact, there's movements in Judaism to squash the influence of the gospel today in the world. They're an enemy of the gospel today. And when Paul says from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now what's choice? Choice. It's God's sovereign choice, his election of Israel. He's decided to not give up on these people. Why? Because he made promises to their fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now what do we know about these fathers? They're just like their children. They're not obedient consistently. Listen, you read in the book of Genesis at least two times Abraham lied about his wife to some world leaders. You read about Jacob, and his name means deceiver, his name means trickster. He is not a wise, obedient person all the time in his life. But God's love for these men was grounded in his grace, not their works. Listen, God did not choose Israel for for her goodness. He did not look at Israel and say, there's the good nation out of all the nations. He didn't do that. He chose Israel because that's his decision to. Because he loves them. And he's not going to abandon Israel because of their badness. He didn't choose them for their goodness. He will not abandon them for their badness. And how do we know that? Well, we know it in verse 29 when Paul writes, For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. If you can, underline that verse. Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Because it's important that you know this. It's important that you know, and as you read through the scriptures, and maybe you're in a time in your life where you're, have you ever been there before where you're just kind of like in a a place where you don't know what to do next, and you just pick up your Bible and you're just kind of like, where do I go? What do I do? Where do I turn? And if you stumble across a passage like Romans 11.29, it speaks truth into your life that God's promise to his people is irrevocable. Now that word irrevocable means that God will never regret calling Israel to himself. It means that God will never change his mind regarding his promises to Israel. And when you read that, you can think, well, okay, that's great for Israel, but here's what you need to know. The God who says that in verse 29 here, that he won't change his mind about Israel, is the same God that will not change his mind about you. When you fall short, when you're walking in disobedience, when you have the 800-pound gorilla on your back and you're thinking, what do I do next? The God that loves you and has called you and has brought you into a relationship through His Son is the same God when you fall short, even as a believer, will not change His mind about you because you are beloved. So you can apply this verse written about Israel to your life. Numbers 23.19 reminds us of this. God is not a man... That he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? What is Moses saying in Numbers 19, or 23 19? If God said something, it will come to pass. That's a big deal, right? How many of you, you don't have to say this out loud, but how many of you in the darkness of night have wondered are God's promises true? Will God change his mind? Will God still love me, even in spite of myself? God's promises, because he said it, and God is not like men. Men go back on their word, right? Think about your life. I mean, our our lives are full of broken promises. God never breaks a promise. God always keeps His word. It is good for us to know that the gifts and calling of God will not change. In the final verses in our passage, we read, For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that He may show mercy to all. Paul's talking to us. He's talking to the church right now. He says, For just as you, Just as you. What does he say about you? For just as you were once disobedient to God. I love that Paul doesn't hold back when he talks about where we came from. He doesn't soften it. He doesn't make it nice and warm and fuzzy and say, Ah, no big deal. He just says it. We're dead. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. There is nothing good in us that would deserve God's grace. He warns us from being complacent. He warns us of being critical of God's work on behalf of Israel. And he tells us, listen, God's going to do in Israel what he did in your life. We were once disobedient. We all had the 800-pound gorilla following us around. We all were totally depraved. And even though the nation of Israel deserves condemnation and judgment, God will show them mercy. God will show them mercy. Why? How? Because He's shown us mercy. And just so we're clear on the matter, verse 32 makes it clear. God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. This phrase, shut up, like we're not allowed to say that word in our house, right guys? Shut up. That's not what Paul's talking about here. The word shut up in the Greek that Paul uses talks about God closing up from all the sides all disobedience, Through God's mercy, Jew and Gentile alike have been brought close through the work of Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. God has done this to show mercy to all. There is nobody that God doesn't want to show mercy to. God provides the opportunity for each person in the world to find mercy through the cross of Jesus Christ. God has given us all the opportunity to come to him by faith to be forgiven. Listen, verse 32 explains what Paul wrote in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And when the power of the gospel goes out and changes sinners like us, we need to understand that, listen, we're not the ones that should pat ourselves on the back that God has saved us, but that we should be the ones that are on our knees praising God that He saved us and that if He saved us, He can save anyone. There is nobody that you know or have heard about or that will come down the road that cannot find God's saving grace. That is the power of the gospel. And if you are ever tempted to think in some kind of spiritual prejudice that they don't deserve what you have, they don't deserve God's goodness, they don't deserve His forgiveness, and you wrote them off, you're in a dangerous place because that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save every person that has ever walked on this earth. He can do it. And when Paul wraps this all up, talking about God's work in Israel's life, he highlights the saving power of Jesus. Because that's the only way that it can happen. Listen, without God's mercy on our behalf, we could never stand in His presence and be called His child. He loves you. But apart from his love, you're not a very lovable person. Right? That's what the scriptures teach us. Like based on what we do, why on earth would he love us? And he says, I don't love you based on what you do. I love you because I made you. And I want you to be with me. And I want to enjoy you forever. And so as we close, if you feel like you have an 800-pound gorilla on your back this morning, what's stopping you from allowing God to remove it? Is it your pride? You know what I mean by that, right? that you can do it? How's the self-help stuff working in your life? It doesn't. We can't create a better us by five easy steps. What else is holding you back? Is it fear that God will not forgive you? That He won't love you? God's promises and gifts will never change. What else is holding you back? Is it your pleasure? You know what I mean by that, right? It just feels too good. I'm not ready to give it up. And that's a struggle in itself. Listen, you think sometimes by what you do, it's no big deal. And if it feels good and it's not harming anyone else, no big deal. But if it's disobedience to God, you cannot enjoy Him in a relationship with Him. And can I challenge you with this? if what's holding you back from the 800-pound gorilla in your life is because you feel like those things feel too good, if you trust God and give that over to Him, what He will give you in return is so much better than how you feel when you do whatever you want, however you want listen, the sin in your life that you hold on to so dearly is holding you back from the life that God wants you to live. And God has mercifully provided a way for you to be set free. To send it away as far as the east is from the west. And if you have never by faith trusted in Jesus Christ and what He has done on the cross to forgive you of your sin, that in your life He will forgive you And restore you. You can do that right now. The gorilla can be gone. And if you know Christ by faith. And are carrying the weight of unconfessed sin in your life. You can be free right now. And the gorilla can be gone. Because God's gifts and promises will not change. And we did this about a month and a half ago. and I think we should do it again. Uh, during our last song. If God's spirit is speaking to you right now. About these things that we've been talking about. About his great mercy. In light of your sin. And disobedience. And you want to be set free this morning. You can do that right now. That is the goodness of the gospel. That is the promise of Jesus that he will set free those who come to him by faith. And so during our last song, if you want some space to work through some of those things, you can do it where you are. But You can also come forward. And I think sometimes coming forward is a step of faith. It's the movement to say, God, I want to come close to you. Not that he's any closer here than he is there, but it's a sign, a step of faith to say, I need to go. And I need to talk to God about what's going on in my life. And if you would like us to pray for you, if you want to come forward, we'd be glad to pray with you, to pray for you, to help you to know that God has certainly been merciful to us. And so I'll I'll stay up here. Um, Our elders can be available. Um, But if you'd like to come forward, listen, nobody's keeping score. I need to be up here. Like, it's that kind of thing. But God will honor the step of faith that you take if you trust him. And so let me pray for you. Because we need to ask God to certainly be merciful to us. Would you pray with me?